for those of us who are survivors of the oppression of our languages as part of the cultural and physical genocide brought on us by the church and state that ran residential schools and other institutional ways in which our languages were stigmatized and oppressed the day that Bill C-91, the Indigenous Languages Act, received royal assent was a memorable occasion that was long overdue. That's Commissioner Ron Ignace. He's just been appointed to lead the new federal office of the Commissioner of Indigenous Languages. He's our guest on the Akamemuk podcast. Tanse, Tawau, and welcome to the Akamemuk podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Cree word for you all persevere. In other words, let's keep going and don't give up. And on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we are pleased to welcome the first ever Federal Commissioner of Indigenous Languages. Ron Ignace is a member of the Suwepmuk Nation in British Columbia and is a fluent speaker of Shuwapmixin. He was the elected chief of Skichisin Indian Band for more than 30 years. He has a PhD in anthropology from Simon Fraser University with a dissertation on Shuwapmuk oral history. From 2016 to 2021, he co-chaired the Assembly First Nations Chiefs Committee on Languages, where he played an instrumental role in the development and passage of Bill C-91, the Indigenous Languages Act. Commissioner Ron Ignace, a very big welcome to our Akamema podcast. Well, I would like to first say that I'm honored and yet humbled to be uh, sitting in front of the national chief who I've held in high esteem and high regard for all the good work that you've done. And it was an honor to sit with you uh, as a co-chair on the National Chiefs Committee on Languages. But uh, as I said in my language uh, in Sohapnchin, I would like to recognize all indigenous peoples in their homelands and to speak to you from my home in Sohapnchulu, in Sohapnchit territory to embark on our work. Well, thank you so much as well, uh, Commissioner Ron Ignace. I want to again congratulate you on your appointment. Um, tell our listeners about your new position. What will be involved with becoming the first ever Commissioner of Indigenous Language Revitalization, the implementation of Bill C-91. Tell us about that. Tell us about your new position. I'm honored, uh, and I, I have to say that I, I'm grateful and thankful to be chosen, along with my directors, to formulate this commission. The calls for the, the commission goes back uh, a long ways. In the 2003-2005 Task Force on Indigenous Languages and Cultures, there in the commission, uh, the task force that I chaired, uh, we did uh, come up with uh, 25 fundamental recommendations of, of which was a call for the establishment of legislation, the commission. But ultimately, I have to be thankful for the 
TRC calls to action in which I believe 14 and 15 called for the establishment of a commission and uh, and the language legislation that has led to the formulation and the work that we have to do. As we know, there are 70 different languages across the country. Much of them are endangered and some critically endangered. Uh, and even uh, such as the Huron language, which is a sleeping language. So it's important and imperative that we honor those those people and those languages that are in those situations and work with them to support Indigenous peoples in their efforts to reclaim, revitalize and maintain and strengthen Indigenous languages, uh, to support uh, research and innovation and promote Indigenous languages across the country and uh, as well as uh, the work of the task forces to to uh, facilitate and uh, resolutions of disputes that may arise, whatever that might be. But, uh, you know, the, we as a commission have to be mindful. It is those indigenous nations that are the lead. We're there to champion and provide support and to be the watchdog on the legislation Mm-hmm. Uh, that the government upholds the promise of the legislation in terms of providing sufficient resources and sustainable resources. As I've watched prior to all of this, our elders having to work out of closets, having to work with pennies, fundraise, create their own curriculum. Uh, but now if, with this legislation, they can now... Uh, have the resources and not expend their time and energy uh, and to properly work to pass on, have the intergenerational transmission of our of our languages to them. So you mentioned there's three directors. Could you give us their names? Gianna Liberté yeah. is a, a Métis director. Uh, Robert Watt is a, the Inuit director. And uh, Joan Grey Eyes is a First Nations director. Okay. And uh, Joan Grey Eyes is a member of the Muscogee Lake Cree Nation within Treaty 6 territory in Saskatchewan. Gina Liberté is a Métis. Her passion of educating others about the history of the Métis people. And Robert has been involved in promoting and protecting and preserving Inuktitut. And I believe he's from northern Quebec. Okay, so you've got a good team. You're the commissioner yes. and you've got three directors. And you mentioned you're there to champion and provide support to First Nations. You mentioned that we have over 70 Indigenous languages, First Nations languages across Canada, and that you're to be a watchdog over government to ensure they have sufficient sustainable resources are there to implement Bill C-91, the Language yeah, Act. Yeah, so yeah. That's key. What are, I think, some of the biggest challenges of your new job? Well, right now, it's actually the, the big job is, is we don't, uh, while we've been announced as a commission, commissioners and directors, we yet to have our secretary established. That is going to be a big job, finding an appropriate COO and uh, staffing and the budgeting, designing the budgeting and laying out the work plan tasks that we have to carry out. Mm-hmm. So you've got to do the whole operationalizing of a whole new institution or department, if you will, from the CEO to the CEO to the budget and ops plan. And so that really becomes your first focus of work. Definitely, definitely. And there is a historic development and it's the first of its kind 
and we don't we don't have a template to build off of and utilize uh, so we're building from ground zero <laughs> well that's both challenging but it's also exciting like you're starting with yes. a blank page so that's what's exciting you can create something just out of a blank page you can draw that portrait yes yes most definitely and we hope to be able to draw beautiful pictures on it <laughs> okay well commission <laughs> commissioner ron revitalizing indigenous language has been your passion for a very very long time you know you've been at this for over 20 years like where did that passion come from where did that spark in you come from where did that drive determination that fire come from regarding language revitalization it goes back to my childhood mm -hmm. i was adopted by my great-grandmother sulian Inez, who was a medicine woman she was following in the footsteps of her mother who was also a medicine woman, an Indian doctor. And uh, Sulian's husband was my great-grandfather, was the chief of our community. And they raised me. She took me in as a child, and she began doctoring me up, took me into the sweat house, and gave me my medicinal powers. Uh, and with us, it's only once in your lifetime that a Shushwap man is allowed to go into a sweat with a woman. And as a young boy, my great-grandmother took me into the sweat and doctored me up. And after that, she said, this will only be the first and last time that you ever go into a sweat with women because the powers are, are separate and, uh, and, and different, but there's only certain uh, ceremonies in which you could bring those two powers together and do great and good things. She taught me the language. I grew up first and foremost speaking Shushwap because of her, because that's all she would speak mm -hmm. to me in. And uh, and when she left me, uh, to put it that way, and she was she knew she was going to pass away. She gave me instructions. She said, "You go out into the white man's world. You go out there and study uh, them." And understand what's going on. And when you've done that, you come home and work with your people, help your people. While I tried to run away and avoid and deny those instructions, because of the way she had raised me and empowered me and gave me powers, those powers drug me back home. <laughs> mm. And uh, the elders... Uh, and I started to work in Shushwap country, and the elders in our community sent two runners out to come and get me. They said, go tell uh, Ron it's time for him to come home. As they knew, uh, had been uh, colleagues of my cohorts of, uh, of my great-grandmother, and mm -hmm. they, they had worked together and had plans for me that I hadn't quite realized. Hmm. But... Uh, and that it was time for me to come home, they said. And at first I said, no, I don't want to go home. I don't want to, I don't want that job. It's too, too hard. Because back in those days, and this was a, a, the result of the residential school mm -hmm. days, uh, that, uh, that our community was in shambles, uh, severe alcoholism. Our, our home that I, a wonderful home that I'd grown up in, in which I had grown up, up with my uh, uh, in a household that had my great-grandparents, my grandparents, 
my uh, aunts and uncles, my nieces and nephews, and myself. It was an extended family. It was in a family that was self-reliant. I, I remember growing up that we, were, we never knew hunger, although we didn't have a fancy home. But mm-hmm. it was nonetheless a loving place to grow up in a happy environment. Uh, hmm. And uh, when right after they took her away on me, I was taken into residential school. And the reason I was taken into residential school, as I later found out, is that one of my aunts had died in residential school. And they hadn't informed my my grandfather that his daughter had died in residential school for two weeks. Hmm. And so when he found out, he went into the residential school and tried to ask why they hadn't informed him and how was it that she had died and they wouldn't tell him. Mm-hmm. And to this day, we're not certain. But my, my grandfather got angry and put a licking on the priest and sent him into hospital and they thought he was going to die. They were going to charge him with murder. And so he hired a lawyer to defend himself. Fortunately, the uh, priest survived and with the help of the lawyer, they dropped the charges on him. But what they did do is one, they blacklisted my grandfather for life and they came and scooped up all his children and me later included in that. Hmm. That's how I wound up in residential school. Wow. So your your grounding, though, was in your great-grandma, you know, in terms yes. of inf- yes. instilling that language and ceremony in, in you as a young boy and growing up and then uh, uh, just being immersed in it. So that's where that spark was laid, eh? And you have to acknowledge your great-grandmother for doing that. Yes, yes, uh, I do, and I, I often, and uh, I often think of her to this day. Uh, she was the one that inspired me and uh, ingrained and embedded the knowledge of our language in me. And when I went into residential school, uh, what I learned was that if I thought in Sohapmukjin and spoke in English, they could not beat me for what I thought. Ah. And so, uh, and I, I still do that to this day. I, I find myself when I'm driving down the road and I see a stop sign, I don't read stop sign in my mind. I say, I read it in Suhwapmukhchin, the order for me to stop. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, t- let's, t- let's talk about that. And um, can you tell us about some of the work you've done to keep your language as it relates to the natural world alive? Like you talked about the sweat lodge and the ceremony that your grandma put you in. Um, you know, like it all relates to language to ceremony, ceremony to language and involve the natural world. Why do you think that matters is so important to our people? Uh, well, uh, you know, as, as uh, our languages, as, as my elders would, would tell me, and I've heard it by many other elders today, is that, how are you going to speak to your ancestors when you go cross over to the other side? So mm-hmm. you must maintain and strengthen your languages, your language. Keep your language so that you will be able to communicate with the ancestors once you cross over. And mm-hmm. and that was a, an important message to me. So I've strived and struggled to ensure that I could, when I go over to the other side, 
that I will be able to sit and converse with my great-grandmother, who I honored and respect so much. So it's all linked, to, again, to ceremony and tradition and even crossing over from this world into the next. It's all linked. Uh, exactly. That, and, mm. uh, and, and our languages are... Our languages come from the land and are relate to the land. And that's why our people are so concerned about the environment. Let me tell you a story here. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a river right to the middle of our reserve. In 1985, the salmon were becoming fewer and fewer. And also, we were having to fight the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So I, I thought, well, how can we take control of our fisheries in our community? And I found that there's, this, there's, there's some instruments within the Indian Act that you can use. It says that uh, laws of general application apply on the reserve unless you occupy the field. Mm -hmm. So I went to my community members and I said, we, I want to pass a fishing bylaw. And they said, okay. But one of the things that you have to be mindful of, that when you pass this law, that that fish there does not just belong to the Sukhup members of Skeetisten, that it belongs to the whole membership of the nation. And if they wish to come and fish, they have that right to fish in order to feed members of their family who are also our relatives. Mm -hmm. But any outsiders, that is another story. And with white people, they have to have a permit and they can only uh, fish uh, with a fly. But to get to the point that I'm trying to make is that in the 1990s, the diminishment of the fish, so we imposed closure on ourselves, thinking that it would help uh, bring back the salmon. But the, it never did because of the commercial, the, the degradation of the fisheries by the commercial fisheries in the ocean. What happened was now we have two generations of our whole community that do not know the language. If I sat and talked to them about how to fish in the, in the creek in our language, how to make the equipment in, uh, of that fishing, they would not be able to We've lost that language because mm. the resource has gone. Our languages are connected to the land and the resources. Without, When they are gone, so does our languages fade away in relation to that. Mm. That is why we have to fight to protect the environment because our languages come from the land and we have a reciprocal responsibility to look after the fish so that they will look after us. Wow, powerful story for sure. Now, in all of your experience, uh, Commissioner Ron, you must have come across some pretty good examples about re language revitalization. You know, like, oh, this was really working good over here in this nation, or in that territory, they're doing wonderful things. Or, can you share some success stories on terms of language revitalization that are, are, that are happening across Turtle Island that the, our listeners would really be interested in hearing? They have a great program of Language Immersion School on the Six Nation Reserve uh, that have been very successful. There's the Squamish Immersion Program at the Squamish Nation. They no longer have any fluent elders, but what they've been able to do is establish an immersion program in which they have designed a cohort, 
with a cohort of 30 students, an immersion program so that now those, many of those students are now becoming teachers. So we have a younger generation that is growing, uh, growing up and becoming instructors and passing on the language with them. Uh, there's the uh, Champagne Asiac uh, First Nation in Yukon Immersion Program. There's a Saanich uh, Centrothan near Victoria. And we have the Sohwepam uh, Immersion Program at Chief Atom School. It's a primary uh, immersion program. And they are highly successful and doing very well. And we're, we're proud of them. And there's a, a growing number of other programs uh, across the country. Hmm. So the it's starting to move in a good way. You know, there's some good examples about revitalization, rejuvenation, immersion, and uh, so that's a really good uh, a good step, good movement going forward. I see. Now, Commissioner Rao, you were a survivor of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. That's where you went to the, the Kamloops Indian Residential School. And, of course, we're all hearing so much about Kamloops because of the uh, uh, discovery, or if you will, of the 215 unmarked children's graves that were found there recently. And uh, we've said it's a validation of what the survivors have been saying all along. You know, this is a validation of their statements, of their truths, that there were deaths at these institutions and there was children that were buried in unmarked graves. So this was just a validation. But when you first heard of it, because you went to that institution, what was your reaction when you first heard about those little ones being uncovered? Well, it was heart-wrenching, uh, and, and it broke broke our hearts and uh, caused as much grief and sorrow throughout the whole nation. And uh, But on the other hand, we knew about it. We had heard stories about it. And then when I was taken to the residential school, as I walked into the door of the residential school, it was a traumatic moment. I cried a primal scream that I've never uttered before and have never uttered in my life since. Because I knew, because I knew that the world mm. that I'd left behind, the richness of our culture, of our ceremonies, of our lifestyle on the land, and uh, being self-reliant would when i get when i got back home would would not be there i instinctively knew that but <clears throat> but i ran away from that residential school i left that residential school yeah. and i hid away and i never got caught but we'd heard for example my my aunt mona that hid me away in another part of our territory, stating that as she was walking near the apple orchard where the burials were uncovered, yeah, not discovered, but uh, yes, yeah, uncovered. uncovered. Yeah. She said that there was an old priest who had the responsibility of having two dogs, that he had two large, mean dogs guarding the apple orchard. And people wondered, why would they need such big, mean dogs to protect the apples? But now we know, uh, and we we heard that stories of senior students in the residential school would be asked to go to the orchard to dig a hole because of apple trees were going to be planted the next day. But they would wonder why there were no apple trees with the holes covered over. 
we all know that residential schools were, were, were very oppressive institutions. And uh, when it comes to language, you know, of course, our languages were outlawed and you were punished for speaking your language. In some cases, for example, and for all like the, the electric chair was used to, to put children in the electric chair for speaking their language. And then, of course, tax on your tongue and then beatings and all those things for speaking your language. How did you manage to keep your language alive in that repressive environment? Well, I, I got my, my fair share of strappings in that residential school. And some of them, they put a wet towel over your bare bum and uh, they whipped you until... And if you tried, we tried not to cry. We tried not to show that they were able, capable of hurting us. But to a certain point, you could do that. What I... Uh, what I did was I was able to sink in our language, uh, and uh, but I realized that if I thought in my language but spoke in English, they could not beat me for what I thought. Mm-hmm. So, and I find myself, even to this day, as I'm driving along, when I see a stop sign, I doesn't, I don't read it in my mind as a as is the words in English stop. Mm-hmm. It comes out in my language as istreicha, the order, the command to stop. Mm. Istre is a word for the, the stop, and the cha on the end is the command that you must stop. Ah, okay. But I mean, our, our languages are, are really important. And if I may expound further on that, uh, for example, in Sukhap uh when I, I have difficulty uh, speaking about myself when I talk to others, because in, in Western society, you've got to talk about how great and what great things you've done and how, what you've, big and good things you've accomplished. But in Sukhap because we're a collective society, when I speak to you, in my language, I have to, and it's a it's a fundamental law. There's no way around it, over it, under it, any which way. I have to use a diminutive, diminish my importance, while raising you up in esteem. But there's a law of reciprocal relationship. When the table is churned, then you, as a suhwapm, would then do likewise and hold me up in esteem. And that is because we're a collective society. That is how we do not challenge each other's, I guess, if you want in English, ego. And that's the way we maintain peace in the valley and honor and respect of each other. That's a respectful way. That's a powerful teaching, you know, respect and humility uh, and balance. Now, my next question I want to talk about, uh, Commissioner Ron, is like you have a very strong partner. Your wife, Marianne, she's an award-winning linguist. And you two have written books together as a couple. You have a strong partnership. Um, tell us about the role that your partnership's played in getting you to where you're at today as commissioner. Oh, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been able... I'm, I wouldn't be the man that I am today if it wasn't for her. You know, uh, we met way back in, in, the, in the 90s. 
I was fighting the sea and double tracking into the Thompson River, which would have harmed the fisheries in the Thompson River. And so we needed an ethnographer to record our cultural heritage on the river. And she came in. And uh, one of the things that we're looking at is she was looking at our family tree, through our family tree, looking at how we conducted ourselves on the water. And I was mm-hmm. really impressed by that. And we've worked together on recording our elders. But uh, if I may point out a personal note first, mm-hmm. and I've never told this publicly. Uh, in 1998, my son, Gabriel Etois Eric, who I was training, I took to the mountains on his vision quest, seeking his spirit powers, and was training him in the language. And he was to to take over from me when I stepped down. Hmm. Uh, but in uh, in the, it was around the time, if you recall, in 1998, when we passed the resolution calling for a, a declaration of a state of emergency of our languages at the AFN. I, uh, my son, got murdered around in 2002. Uh, not long after that, we were moving to establish. We got we were called in to. I'd word that we're to establish the opportunity for the task force in Ottawa. It was so important that I felt that it was so important that we get that work done, that we have that task force, accomplish that work of that task force, establishing it. But my son was murdered. There was a two-year court case. And she said to me, don't worry. I'll stay in, 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 in the courthouse. Whenever you come home, you can join me there. As hard and as difficult as it was for those two years, she allowed me to go and do work because it was a work for languages. Mm-hmm. And I, my son had got murdered, violently mm. and most viciously murdered. And I thank her for for the, what she'd done then. Those two years in court, yeah. listening to the brutality of how our son was murdered, still haunts her as well as, and the, his loss still haunts me to this day. Mm. And uh, she has been, but powerful she has powerful strength and she's been able to reach out and the elders have grown to respect her and honor her and right uh, what she's done i mean she's done creative and innovative things for example we've been able to do a recording of the elders knowledge through zoom during this covid mm-hmm. times and we bring on the elders and we've we've translated taken Shushwap stories that were recorded only in English and we've translated them back into Suhwapmukjin and we've got we're near finishing to a publication and she's been working with the elders and 
the elders would, uh, she would go through this episode by episode in the story and she brought in mm. some artists as the elders would tell the, the, the story, the episode of the story in, in Suhapmuk Jean. Uh, the the artists would come in with a rendition of that uh, of that episode and say to the uh, to the elders is this a, a proper representation of this episode and the elders would say no you have to do it this way the the hand gestures have to be this way we've been able to translate and do with photos uh, with drawing artistic renditions of the story to 25 foundational Suhwepam, episodic Suhwepam stories that's on the works for publication. Hmm. I mean, great so, things, great innovative approaches like that, working with the elders, and the elders love working with her as long as, and I, I, I love working with them in that. And that has yeah. helped me strengthen my knowledge of our language, strengthen my knowledge of the the laws and traditions and customs embedded in our languages. Hmm. It's a powerful statement, powerful teaching story in terms of the relationship you have with Marion and uh, her support and caring for, for you and the family. And just want to acknowledge uh, Marion and the family for her sacrificing and, and sharing. Um, because basically they're sharing you with all of uh, the Suwepmik Nation and um, all of people across Canada. And so, but what a strong partnership that you have, and uh, you're both uh, written books together. You both work with elders together, and uh, I, I know uh, you might be the uh, the commissioner, Ron Ignace, but you're definitely backed up and sol- very solidly by a strong woman to be with you and by your side. So that's a, a strong statement going forward. So, Commissioner Ron, what gives you hope in spite of all the things we've endured in Canada? What provides you hope? What gives you hope? Well, uh, if I may uh, go back to a statement that I made in our inauguration, for those of us who are survivors of the oppression of our languages as part of the cultural and physical genocide wrought on us by the church and state that ran residential schools and other institutional ways in which our languages were stigmatized and oppressed, the day that Bill C-91, the Indigenous Languages Act, received royal assent, was a memorable occasion that was long overdue. It's a rare piece of legislation that's co-developed by Indigenous peoples and the Canadian government, and many of us are seeing it as a way forward as we seek reconciliation and, I may add, restitution and move towards a just future. Well, Commissioner Ron Ignace, congratulations again. I know you do a great job for all of us in Canada. Well, I congratulate you for all the good work that you've done and for the inspiration that you have been to me. Yeah, I raise my hands up to you in our tradition. Thank Cooks you. Jam. Cooks Jam. Thank you so much for coming on our Akamemuk podcast. Thank you. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemuk podcast. If you enjoyed it, Please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.